Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Jill Harding, and you're listening to I've Got a Feeling, the podcast where we discuss what grounds us, what makes us feel alive, what fuels our hearts, and ultimately what brings us each to flourishing. On this podcast, I have conversations with friends I've known for ages, people I've only just met, and people who inspire me by how they demonstrate flourishing, at least from my vantage point. The guests on this show are from a wide variety of backgrounds, belief systems, and life experiences, and I hope that from these interviews, you gain a sense of the breadth of unique examples of what flourishing can look like, and take these ideas as inspiration to discover how you might create wellness and flourishing in your own life. Thank you for joining me for the next episode of I've Got a Feeling podcast. I'm so excited today to welcome Abby Harding to the podcast. As you might hear from the last name, we are related. Abby is my sister-in-law. She is an author, a published author. She is the lovely mother of my nieces and nephew. She's been married to my brother for over 10 years now. Gosh, over 12 years now. And we met around the time that we were entering high school and lived near each other, spent so much time together growing up, and I really enjoyed speaking with her today about all the flourishing that I have seen her invest in and herself over the years. It has been a bit of a bumpy ride for her, but she has done so much work to really invest in herself and figure out how to bring some stability and to dig deep into that flourishing for herself. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and please stay around at the end. We it's, it looks like a long one, but it's because we have a special treat for you at the end. So stick around and hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome back to another episode of I've got a feeling and welcome to my sister-in-law, Abby. Hey, and thank you for letting me use your sound room. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> My brother, who you will hear from another episode, uses a sound dampening room for his work, and we are utilizing it for our purposes today. Yep. Very handy to have. Yes. <laughs> also, when escaping from children noise. Yes. It does also help that they are in bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, Abby, why don't you give our listeners a little idea of who you are? I've already let them know a little about, oh, I've already let them know a little bit about our relationship, but tell us some of the things you'd like them to know about you. Well, if I had to write a little bio blurb for a podcast or whatever, I would probably mention that um, I live in central Illinois. I have six chickens, two cats, a guinea pig, three children, and a husband. And um, when I'm not homeschooling, I spend a lot of my time writing, and I also work at our church as the office administrator. And you have been increasingly pursuing professional writing. I have. Mm -hmm. But all of that kind of started besides, you know, novice, fun pursuit of a hobby, you also have higher degrees in I do in the field. Tell us yes. about that. Um, well, in 2011, I graduated from Bradley University with my master's in English with an emphasis in writing. 
Um, before that, I actually was an undergrad at Bradley as well. I've always had a passion for literature and for writing. I think I wrote my first official story when I was like eight. Uh, it was called Patty the Squirrel. I illustrated it myself. It was great. I think I still have it around here somewhere. But yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer, um, but definitely thought of myself as an aspiring writer for most of my life until I realized that the only difference between an aspiring writer and someone who's actually a writer is whether they are actively writing. Mm. Um, so I started actively writing. And so you're a writer. And so I'm a writer. I think that we will come back to this more as we go on, but I think you're able to speak well about how writing fills you. And was that, just to kind of jump backwards, was that part of what made you choose that as a potential career? You know, I've <clears throat> I've thought a lot about this over the last few years about what it was that even from a young age made me want to be a writer. And a big part of that was that I had adults in my life who were validating that I was a good writer, that I had some innate talent. Um, and then over time, that became almost like this perception of pressure to be a good writer. Mm -hmm. And that if I wrote something crappy, that that made me a bad writer. Um, so that everything everything I wrote had to be perfect on the first try or it didn't count. Sure. That's how I felt, right? Because who knows what standards people have. Right. So yeah. perfection only. Yes, perfection only. Um, which just put me in a kind of a frozen stasis, not able to write because I was too afraid of failing. Yeah. Um, so you felt this love as a child, maybe with some pressure, you know, maybe... Mm -hmm. Maybe with this expectation that you could have made up or could have been per actually communicated to you. Mm -hmm. And what did your journey then look like moving forward, especially holding on to what it sounds like this new newfound allegiance to perfection? I can't imagine that goes well long term because nope. um, it's impossible. Correct. <laughs> yes. So what was that? I mean, I guess just kind of take us forward with you and tell us a bit more about how you connected to the act of writing itself and how it made you connect to who you are. Well, I remember times, especially as a teen, writing very angsty poetry. You know, it was a form of, um, I'm, a, I'm a very external um, processor. I need to talk things out in order to really even understand what I'm thinking or feeling. And writing is definitely a fairly safe way of doing that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I especially connected with poetry. Um, I remember there being a few psalms that were really speaking to me in my teens, but then um, finding other writers, secular writers, and just uh, I had a really excellent literature education growing up. My mom definitely nurtured that well for me. She saw um, <clears throat> that I was drawn to story and drawn to writing and did um, a really good job of trying to nurture that in me. And that's something that we, you know, you mentioned that you homeschool your kids now. Mm -hmm. 
my nieces and nephew. And yet you also were homeschooled. So was I. Mm -hmm. And something that I think we both gained from that too was the ability to center in on things that we felt passionate about and kind of continue to pursue that. Mm -hmm. Of course, not neglecting the other things, but, but harnessing that energy. Yep, for sure. And so it really, it was pretty easy for me when I got to the age, you know, senior in high school, trying to decide what I wanted to do. There were actually, I say it was easy. There were actually several things on the table. Um, I was considering doing visual art or music or English. Mm. And um, it became apparent pretty quickly that English felt the most natural, almost like the easiest path forward. So I guess I maybe took that path because it felt easy, but I think it felt easy because I had an affinity for it. Yeah. So even back then as a kid, you were, I mean, an old, older kid, but Mm -hmm. you were already figuring it out, figuring out also what it meant to tune into your intuition. Yes, definitely. And pay attention to what felt the most you, Mm -hmm. what felt right for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's not always something that like, especially I, I think probably the years we were raised, that's not always something that was fostered, you know, right in parenting, Mm -hmm. because I think we, there's a lot of benefit that was seen to doing practical things and making practical choices. And sometimes the arts weren't perceived to be practical. Yes. I'm very grateful that my parents Um, never pressured me to go into a more quote-unquote practical field or more lucrative, like something that would make money more, um, a more guaranteed income. Mm -hmm. They never pressured me to do a different degree or anything. They were very supportive all the way through, and I'm very appreciative of that. Was that something that for you you had in the back of your mind as you were pursuing a more arts-based track? Was it something you worried about at all? Or was it so not emphasized that you didn't even really think about it? Well, the flip side of my homeschool experience was actually that uh, I had this expectation going into adulthood that I was going to have a life very similar to my mother's, that I was going to be a stay-at-home mom, that I would homeschool my children, that I would have a husband who worked outside of the home and was the sole breadwinner. And so for me, what I went into, how much money that was capable of making didn't really matter to me because Mm -hmm. I had this whole paradigm of what it would look like in my adult life that was, you know, nurtured in me Mm -hmm. by what my parents' values were and what my values were at that time in my life. And of course, that informed my decisions. Mm-hmm. Did that feel like a path that you were excited about for your future? It felt like what you were pursuing, motherhood and, and homemaker and all those things? It's, it's an interesting duality, honestly, because there was part of me that I remember from a very young age wanting to be a mother. But I also remember, especially in my teens, really chafing against the idea of being put in a box, the idea of being limited. I am naturally pretty ambitious, and I do feel like a lot of the values or priorities 
that were made for me as a child tended to diminish my ambition. Mm. Did you lose that along the way then if it wasn't emphasized either in maybe the goals that you thought you should pursue or in the community around you? It absolutely did. I look back at that version of myself and I have a lot of a lot of compassion for her. Mm. But I absolutely did dream very small because that was what I felt like I was allowed to do. Mm. Um, I thought, you know, that I could be a stay-at-home mom and write children's books, you know, but everything was through this lens of what was appropriate Mm. rather than what was life-giving to me. What would you say that the appropriateness scale was based on? I think the appropriateness scale was probably based on the pretty conservative Christian culture in which Mm. I was raised. The pretty conservative Christian um, virtues or principles that my my parents held Mm -hmm. um, in those years. And so within that structure of thinking, a lot of the roles that you for that time were aspiring to we're pretty standard, right? Like yes, many right. people around us, I think, aspired to very similar things because mm-hmm. it's what we felt like success would look like for us. Right. Well, you know, it's intrinsically human to want to be part of community. Mm-hmm. And to be part of community means to look like that community. And the community that was around us mm-hmm. looked a lot like mom stays at home and her primary function in life is to be a wife and mother Mm -hmm. and that everything else after that is secondary or tertiary. Mm -hmm. I think that we will not skip ahead, but I am curious putting a pin in Mm -hmm. or maybe just comment on, you know, now kind of inhabiting many of those roles, although probably from a different spirit. What is your take on... Maybe not, I don't know what word you use, maybe not the virtues of those roles, but the purpose that you find in some of those things now Mm -hmm. that I assume is different than what you expected to find. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, One that I don't have a nice, neat answer for. I love my children. I love being their mom. It's been a very complicated journey becoming their mother. Um, One thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is what a shame it is that you have to learn parenting on the job Mm. (laughs) that um, your first kid is your practice kid. Right. And then your second kid is. Yes. There's so (laughs) much I wish I could do differently. Mm. Um, You know, I also recognize and this is a little bit outside of the question, but um, my first few years of motherhood are a total fog Mm -hmm. because I was struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety. And um, it wasn't until, again, very recently that I was reflecting back on those years and realizing how much I missed just because I was so stuck in my own head for so much of that time. Missed of them or missed of? Yeah, I didn't get to revel in their littleness the way mm-hmm. that I wish I could have. Mm. 
Yeah, you had a barrier to that. Yeah, I did. And so, you know, it didn't look the way like I thought it was going to, either when I was younger envisioning what being a mother would look like, or in the moments where um, it kind of started to look that way, like when our middle child was just a couple of months old, um, then went from working at home to working outside of the home with a regular nine to five, which was the first time in our marriage that either of us had had a nine to five. Mm -hmm. And I was suddenly that image of the stay at home mom with two little kids and doing that on my own for the first time was really challenging. And in those moments, really, I really chafed against that and, and, you know, felt like still, I still hadn't untangled what my expectations or what I perceived expectations around motherhood should be versus my lived experience Mm -hmm. of it and how letting go of some of those expectations would have freed me in those moments. Yeah, because interestingly, the expectations that you noticed and voiced in your teen years became the thing that maybe made you feel like you were drowning. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think in those years, circling back around to writing a little bit, um, you know, after, after college, I wrote a lot in college, mostly for assignments. I read a lot. And after I graduated, I basically pivoted entirely. I didn't read hardly at all for several years. I barely wrote. I wrote a few blog posts in those years. And I actually wound up working on my grandparents' farm, which was about as far from writing as I could get. (laughs) Manual labor versus intellectual. And there there was a lot of intellectual labor and Um, good puzzles and it was a challenging and growing experience and I think it fed into that ambition that desire Mm. to make something of myself I pictured myself as um, a business owner as someone who could take over the family business and turn it from a side project a you know a passion project of my grandparents into something that was actually capable of sustaining our family because they had been um, bringing produce and things to farmers markets in the area for a while Mm -hmm. and you moved there with perhaps the intent and the hope that it would become a business that you ran and you owned and right yes absolutely Um, inheriting the legacy so to speak yeah inheriting the legacy there wasn't anybody else in our family that had caught the vision Mm. for what the farm was trying to be. And I felt like I, I got it. Um, I still love the idea of sustainable local agriculture. And, um, there is a big part of myself that really still, still grieves that we had to say goodbye to that, that dream and that passion, but I would not be, able to write and do the things that I'm doing with my life now if we had stayed at the farm. When was it that you moved there? How long had you been married? We had been married for almost two years when we moved there. 
or no, coming up on three years because we got married in 2010 and we moved there in the spring of 2013. I found out I was pregnant with our eldest literally like two days before we moved out Mm -hmm. to the farm. And, you know, we had this really rosy vision of what it was going to be like to live there with my grandparents. Um, I definitely pictured sitting on the porch with my grandma, drinking iced tea while my kids gambled around in the front yard and, um, you know, just taking care of my grandparents as they aged. I was not anticipating the rapid decline that my grandmother had in her health, even just that summer Mm -hmm. after we moved there. Um, Ben and I really wound up taking on a lot of caretaker role in the house. Um, And we were, we were really young. Like (laughs) looking back, I, I see a lot of the mistakes that I made in particular in my relationship with both of my grandparents while we lived there. But I try to remember that I was, 25 when we moved there I I was very young (laughs) um young and stupid like my brain was just finishing developing right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you know and I that was a massively growing experience living there and I imagine as you know our listeners may have heard in past episodes we're fans of the Enneagram around here Mm -hmm. but I also imagine that as a four which is kind of this romantic, you know, idealist type of personality. Mm-hmm. Like you probably went into that with just such a beautifully painted idea of, you know, the nostalgic memories that could come from it and like all the lovely things that could grow, which I'm sure you did get some of that, but Absolutely. also reality never quite matches the paintings we right. make in our heads. Right. Yes. And so I do struggle you know, and as part of that, that perfectionism sneaking in there again, I do struggle with not feeling like imperfection is failure. Mm. That if it doesn't look perfect and, you know, I'm very good at painting beautiful scenes in my head (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, and hopefully with my words, getting better at that too. But if it doesn't look like that, then I've failed. Or at least, you know, that's how I I used to interpret it. And I'm learning how to enjoy those rosy images of the future while remaining more present in the now Mm -hmm. and embracing the imperfection and kind of rolling with it more. I talk to clients quite a lot about the difference between hope and expectation. Yeah. And that expectations often do end us up disappointed, Mm -hmm. make us end up disappointed. But hopes almost can harness a similar emotion, but not achieving it doesn't always hit as hard. Right. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I've talked with my therapist a lot about over the last few years is just the concept, the the concept of radical acceptance Mm -hmm. and that radical acceptance is, you know, you don't have to like the way that something is right now, but you're not waiting around for it to change. You're not expecting it to change so that it's still, you know, you have that hope that things will get better, but letting go of the expectation of perfection or of change is very freeing. Well, and as you were describing 
what it felt like to live there, even though ultimately you didn't stay. I thought it's such a good example as well of being responsive to the things that come up in life, right? Because, which is, it's similar to being in the present, but allowing yourself to respond to reality mm-hmm. rather than try to force the expectation right because you came to a place that you you needed to move for a variety of reasons yep. and you allowed yourselves to respond to that need and do so even though like you said there's some grief in that for you still absolutely. to think about yeah absolutely it was a very challenging decision to to move away from the farm um, which ultimately led to the decision for me to leave the business entirely. And I think that a lot of fours, you know, we're, we're drawn to nostalgia and melancholy and all of those things and that, that rose-colored image of the world that we long for. I think a lot of fours do that with the past. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm a future dweller. I'm thinking about, and I think that's part of, you know, that ambition thing mm-hmm. too, that I'm constantly thinking about what I'm working toward or what I want the future to look like, which can make me very discontented with the present or just not living fully in the present because I'm constantly like even, you know, sitting at the table with my kids doing school, I'm thinking five steps ahead about what the rest of the day is going to look like, what I'm going to be making for dinner, setting expectations, Mm. good or bad for the day, which of course often leads leads to frustration because with three little kids, uh, days rarely go (laughs) according to expectation. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that is one of my fatal flaws is living too much in the future. Mm. And yeah, that's where, that's where my nostalgia lays interestingly, that I'm longing for the perfect future rather than dwelling in a nostalgic past. Something we learned about in my counseling program was, I actually don't know if I have great language for it, but it was kind of this idea of triads in how we help clients process in a variety of ways, so Mm -hmm. many ways. But one of the ways was that many clients will come to us with a very strong sense of two of three, past, present, or future. And part of what our help is needed in is strengthening the weaker Mm -hmm. of the three. Mm -hmm. Because in feeling somewhat balanced between the three, that's kind of when you feel grounded and planted. And I've always been a past and a future person. And Mm -hmm. I have found so much balance personally in learning how to like revel in the present. Yes. And it sounds like for you, the the future was obviously strong. Do you yes. know, was one other one also somewhat I, strong? I think the past also, I'm constantly analyzing what has happened. Um, so I have these two parts of my brain, one that's thinking about the future, planning, you know, the thinking five steps ahead part, and then the analyzing what has happened, what my role in that is, what that makes me feel, what that means for me, etc. Um, and with those two voices going, I have a very hard time being yeah. present. Yes. And so learning... they're noisy. <laughs> yes, they are noisy. And learning how... Um, it's partly turning those dials down, but it's also learning how to 
be present, how to notice what I'm feeling and thinking right now, about mm. right now. Yeah, that's been, that's, that is a continuing, uh, hopefully, growth arc for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking too about a few episodes ago, we began to introduce kind of this idea of the five dimensions of wellness, which again, I kind of always hold in my spirit that there's probably more than five, but five is certainly pretty Mm -hmm. holistic. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of what you're talking about up to now really mostly lives in the emotional dimension, partly intellectual, but we may talk more about that. But I would also love to know any thoughts that you have, um, the remainder, well, I guess we did kind of touch on spiritual as well mm-hmm. in some of those expectation setting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah, spiritual, intellectual, physical, emotional, and social. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not going to direct you any certain way, but would, do you have any thoughts about how you have seen yourself either move away from groundedness in, in those areas or find grounding again. Yeah. Well, I, I do feel like over the last few years, my work has mostly been emotional. So that's the one that like I can talk about for a really long time (laughs) because that's, you know, again, you know, as a, a four too, I think that we're very emotion based and I definitely am, you know, uh, trust my intuition, trust my emotion, and then go to the intellectual side of it and Mm -hmm. figure it out from that side. But um, I think that about three years ago, we had just moved into our current home. I guess it was about two and a half years ago. And I had kind of been dallying with writing again. I had, you know, like I said earlier, after college, I did not really write and I never wrote with any intentionality or habit mm-hmm. of writing. You know, I never cultivated a habit of writing and just wrote when I felt like it. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of leaning into that emotion and intuition, just when I felt like it, when the muse struck. Mm. And any writer <laughs> that you talk to who earns a living as a writer is going to tell you that you cannot earn a living as a writer if you only write when you feel like it. Hmm. Um, Honestly, you can't make a living doing anything. Right. If you wait till you feel exactly. like it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, st- I felt this urge to be writing. I felt a calling to it. But I was, again, so afraid of failing at it that I just kept dipping my toe in and then shying away again for months at a time. And I had what I can really only describe as an epiphany in a conversation with a couple of friends. We were having a girls' night here at my house, and I don't even remember the exact question or which one of them asked it, but it was something along the lines of, what would it take for you to be a writer? Because I was, you know, expressing something about not being a real writer, and I Mm -hmm. had this vision of what being a real writer should look like again you know those expectations and that rosy vision I was picturing you know a cottage with my desk in front of a window with the view of the garden if I didn't have five hours to dedicate to thinking and writing every day then I wasn't a real writer 
And one of them challenged that. I don't think I even necessarily expressed that that's what I was picturing, but their their question challenged that expectation for me. What would it look like for me to be a real writer? And I gave the answer that I, I you know mentioned earlier that the only thing stopping me from being a real writer was getting my butt in the chair and actually writing. Mm-hmm. And so, somehow, you know, I'd heard that many times from other writers. I knew that intellectually, but somehow that night something clicked for me. I felt it rather than just knew it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, that really lit a fire under my butt. And I started finding hours or even half hours to sit down. I had a novel that I had, I think, maybe 17,000 words of that I had written that many over the last two or three years of trying to sit down and write this book. And between that would have been like October or November of 2020. Mm -hmm. And by, I think, April 30th of 2021, I finished the first draft of that book. 100,000 words. words. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I wrote the last 20,000 in um, about 12 days at the the end of April. (laughs) Well, you know, I'd been writing it in my head for so long that once I got out of the messy middle, I knew how it ended. Mm -hmm. I just had to get myself to that point. And then I just had to write it. Mm-hmm. What did it feel like writing it? There were times, and there still are many times, where I sit down to write and it feels like pulling teeth. Mm-hmm. It feels like I can't focus. I can't get my brain out of that perfectionism loop again, where I'm waiting for the right words instead of just writing any words and then worrying about fixing them later. Mm-hmm. But when I got to those, last 20,000 words. Like the reason I was able to get that out was because I stopped trying so hard. I just Mm -hmm. knew what was going to happen. And I listened to the characters and to their emotions. And I just transcribed. Which to circle back to something you've said twice already, Mm -hmm. setting aside expectations. Yes. Right. Like you kind of moved into the present with where the characters were. Yeah. And responded to that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and it was it was such an interesting process writing that book because there you know I had it kind of generally mapped out in my head what it was going to look like and then there were a few scenes where I wrote it and I went that's not right mm-hmm. that's negating this character's growth that they've already done or you know it adds to the drama if I do it this way but that's not true to the characters yeah and so I had to go back and rewrite it there's one particular confrontation in the book that I thought went a particular direction. And after I wrote it the first time, I went, that's not it. That's not how this should go. Mm. And it was after that first book, that that first draft of that book was finished, that I think I finally started to believe that I was a writer. It took months of actively writing for me to even begin to feel like a real writer. And there were so many times in the year or two after that, that I have doubted myself that I've, you know, again, with the expectation of what it looks like to be a real writer that has crept back in and made me doubt whether I count. Mm -hmm. But I have very few days where I doubt that I am a writer. I think of myself as a writer now, 
not as an aspiring writer. And that's a huge win for me. I I want to circle back to the five the five wellness mm-hmm. dimensions, but before we do, I'm curious like how did that shift in your mind of kind of your label or identity? What did that do for you to be able to say, "No, I am a writer." Because that's I don't know what would you have set up to them? Like I'm a mother, I'm a wife, whatever. Right. And mm-hmm. then like thinking of this ambition that you had, did it meet a need for you or did it, what did it do? Absolutely. It freed me uh, mm-hmm. in amazing ways, honestly, in ways that I wasn't expecting. It gave me a kind of dignity that I, for myself, like respect for myself mm-hmm. that I was lacking. And I think that that has really snowballed in other areas of my life after I started taking my writing seriously, which ultimately was beginning to take myself seriously. I realized how many like bad emotional habits Mm -hmm. I was still carrying around from years of being depressed. I, you know, experienced depression symptoms in my teens and then In my early 20s, right after, like within months of us getting married, I spiraled into the worst depression of my life to that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in grad school and I very nearly failed out. I was doing the bare minimum in my classes and mostly I was sitting on my couch eating Cheez-Its, watching the X-Files and (laughs) cross-stitching. Which is very not reflective of your capabilities. Right. Right. It was purely... A mental health It was. It was. It was a mental health, you know, it was a crisis Mm -hmm. in my life. And things, of course, got worse before they got better in that particular moment of my life. Um, I remember the absolute humiliation of going to the, the person who was in charge of my assistantship at the university and telling them that I needed to drop a class and... Um, you know, that I was really struggling. And he told me, well, maybe you just aren't supposed to be in grad school. Not everyone can do grad school. So kind of him. Right? Like, I am so angry for that Abby that she, (laughs) that somebody was that dismissive of her. It was crushing at the time. Thankfully, um, the faculty of the English department were extremely supportive. I had several really excellent professors who really, you know, the the kind of people who bend over backwards for students. It helped that I had finished my undergrad there. So they knew me. They knew yeah. what I was capable of as a student and that I was capable of finishing the program. And they made sure that I did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that experience also put a, a, a sour taste in my mouth for writing and for English that took a long time to differentiate my depression from that. Um, And possibly put a bad taste in your mouth for speaking out your needs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it did. That's always been, you know, something that I struggle with, gotten better at it. I would much prefer that people be able to intuit my needs rather (laughs) rather than me have to spell it out for them. The dream. Yes, right? (laughs) Um, But from that time on, I feel like I had a constant soundtrack of bad self-talk. 
mm-hmm. of negative self-talk. And it took many years to rewrite that soundtrack. And even after I was no longer what I would call actively depressed, by the time I got to my uh, late 20s or early 30s, I really wasn't depressed anymore, but I was acting like I was depressed. Mm -hmm. I had these emotional habits of pushing happiness away, that happiness, I had become so comfortable being miserable that that's what I thought I was supposed to feel like. And so positive emotions were scary. Mm. Positive emotions were taboo. And so when I would start to feel joy, when I would start to feel excitement or exuberance for something, I would shut that shit down so fast. <laughs> like I was too cringy. Yeah, I wouldn't let myself be happy. Mm. And once I started putting that together, it, and it was about, it was after I started writing and I was starting to feel this respect for myself and starting to rewrite some of, like, that's when I realized how bad those those soundtracks had become. And I kind of started, um, it started out officially. And then, of course, I didn't uh, <laughs> see it all the way through the, to the end, but I started what I was calling the 12 Months of Happy project. And the idea behind that was that I was going to add an element every month that would support rewriting those emotional habits to make joy accessible Mm -hmm. every day. One of the first things I did, which felt absolutely uncomfortable and ridiculous (laughs) at first, was I actually started doing affirmations every morning and every evening. It was so uncomfortable <laughs> at first. It was so uncomfortable. Are so squeamy to start. They feel so, but they're so corny. Yeah, they feel so corny and they feel so fake. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the first few times, the first many times you say them, you don't believe them mm-hmm. is the problem because you still have all of those unhealthy soundtracks playing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sidebar, but I get a lot of this language from John Acuff's book, Soundtracks. And I actually, he has uh, an affirmation anthem in his book that I heavily based my own affirmation list on. And I did that religiously, like every morning and every evening for 30 days, I made myself do it. And by the end of the month, it was starting to get easier And I didn't, like, it still didn't feel true, Mm. but it started to get easier to say them. Mm -hmm. And um, what was really ridiculous was when I would be partway through the day and I would start to notice one of my old reels in my head saying something negative, I would be like, well, no, I'm actually Mm -hmm. this and fill it in. Like those phrases that I was repeating every day were popping into my head in those moments. And I was was hacking my brain. It was crazy. It was a very interesting experience. That was the only only step of the the 12 months of happy that I did well. But I also feel like it was one of the most important things I've done for my mental health in the last two decades, you know? Especially if it really started a trajectory or a pattern. It did. 
And what's been so interesting is I have had depressive episodes in usually the late winter and late summer every year for the last couple of years, but they are radically different than what I used to experience Um, because those soundtracks aren't there. I'm not getting down on myself during Mm -hmm. those moments. I'm not hearing you're a failure. You suck at everything. Mm -hmm. You, your family would be better off without you. I'm not hearing that Mm -hmm. anymore. I just feel kind of low, low energy. And just, it's, I, (laughs) it's the weirdest phrase to, to say healthy depression, but that's almost like it's a fallow season rather than a a totally unhealthy it's like and as soon as I recognize that oh I'm I just need to slow down I need to focus on self-care I need to do things that nurture that joy because you know joy isn't exclusively feelings of happiness it's a feeling of being safe and being whole Mm -hmm. no matter your circumstances right Mm -hmm. and Always, I'm not always successful at finding that joy and tapping into that, but I'm getting a lot better at it. And it is really weird, <laughs> like yeah. truly bizarre to be in these emotional dips. But like it isn't even, it is it is an emotional dip, but it isn't dark the way that it used to be. Yeah. If anyone is connecting to what she's saying, also, we recommend the book Wintering. Absolutely. By Catherine May. I think it's Kathleen. Kathleen May. (laughs) We'll look it up while we're talking. But um, both as farmer-related individuals and people who have spent time working in, in and on mental health, this idea that a season of barren fields, so to speak, is so much different than a season of diseased land and being able to treat, whether it's a figurative or literal winter, seasonally as a time of resting and um, almost feeding yourself Mm -hmm. again Mm -hmm. instead of kind of this societal pressure to hustle, 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 wear yourself out all the time, 24-7. It's just such an imperative shift. And this book really explains that well from the author's um, experience. Yeah, that is Catherine May's book, Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. Yes. So, again, thinking about these dimensions of wellness, you know, you've talked about the emotional side. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the writing is emotional, but it's Mm -hmm. also intellectual. Absolutely. And how does that, how do you feel like those impact each other or, or any of the other ones as well? Well, I feel like the, the writing and learning how to sit down and write on a schedule, write whether I feel like it or not, was learning how to give less weight to my emotions that I was letting them run amok, letting them (laughs) run my life instead of learning how to listen to them but not have them be the final voice. And, you know, kind of going back to the the affirmations, like deciding 
to do that was a very intellectual pursuit rather than an emotional one. And at first, there was no emotion apart from, you know, feeling uncomfy (laughs) with them. Um, It was all retraining the brain. Yes, it was all retraining, which was very, very intellectual. And then that, of course spilled over into so many different areas of my life because I can be a more present friend. Uh, It's easier for me to reach out for help when I need it. One of my best friends last week, or no, this week, I was feeling, I've been in one of those kind of depressive slumps. And this week I was feeling completely overwhelmed by my house, which uh, (laughs) with how busy our life is that the housework is what gets the brunt of my neglect most of the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then you add kind of a, a, one of those wintering seasons on top of that. And it had gotten really overwhelming. And for me, the visual clutter in the house is just as overstimulating as too much noise Mm -hmm. or, you know, so it's very uncalming in a season where I'm already feeling unsettled. And rather than letting myself spiral, I called my friend and I'm like, hey, can you come help me clean? I just need, like, I'm so overwhelmed. I can't even decide where to start. Mm -hmm. And because she (laughs) is, she is one of those people that demonstrates to me all the time what selflessness looks like, what it means to be in community and to lean in even when it's hard. And she was, she, her answer was something to the effect of, thank you for asking. I would mm-hmm. literally drop anything to come help you. <laughs> <laughs> and she did. She did. Um, Thursday of this week, she came over after her husband got home from work and we cleaned our basement playroom, which was epic levels of messy mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, made it a calmer space, which means that my children are actually using it, which means they aren't bringing as many toys. Like it's, you know, this, yeah. this cycle. But me from a few years ago would never have been able to reach out and ask for help because the perfectionism was telling me that I should be able to handle my crap on my own. And the depression just had, you know, that negative soundtrack in there was telling me that I wasn't worth helping. And so, of you know, and of course my friends and family were not telling me that, thankfully. <laughs> you know, I know I know there are people who have horrible people in their life. Yeah. I am not, I am blessed to not be one of those people. I have, I am really surrounded by wonderful, supportive people. But whether I'm willing to accept that help. Yeah, that's that is a that's a new thing. Yeah. Well, and and kind of like you said, all of these things are impacting the other spheres. Mm-hmm. The the work to strengthen some flourishing or some wellness in your mm-hmm. intellectual space helped balance out the emotional space which brought some connection in the social space mm-hmm. and literally your physical space too. Maybe not how you use your body, but how your physical space around yeah. you impact you. Well, my body too. Like the um, the work that I've been doing, part of my emphasis has been learning how 
to actively love my body and not dislike it Mm. actively. (laughs) Um, Learning how to embrace intuitive eating, how to do movement because it makes me feel good and um, just, yeah, being okay with taking up space Mm. and using my body in ways that are joy bringing. And all of that too, as a underscore to that intention of growing your awareness of the present, right? Like, yes, exactly. I feel hungry. I feel full. Yes. My muscles want to move. My mm-hmm. muscles want to rest. Yes. And I, you know, one of the things that I've found that I still, this is one that I forget often is when I f- start to feel anxious or stuck moving my body physically in the real world and not just running around in circles in my head almost always unsticks me. If Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in a story I'm writing, if I go for a walk nine times out of 10, I'm going to figure out Mm -hmm. the problem before I get home. Um, And it's just, it's so calming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's uh, and yeah, I wouldn't have noticed the effect that that had on my body as clearly if I, like you said, wasn't able to, be more present in my body. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't talked about this today, but I think that like just in our conversations in the past, like all this stuff has impacted your spiritual life too and made you able to like connect to it in a new Mm -hmm. way. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, there have been, there have been some really big bumps in my extended family life over the last few years that have caused a lot of anger in my heart and I remember feeling so angry about this particular situation just that the world was such a broken place Mm. that this could even be possible it felt like just a huge paradigm shift for me and I remember even amidst that feeling like this this core of truth that you know despite all of these extra questions and all of this bubbling turmoil around me. It's like basically all those things that are in like the Nicene Creed, like just those real simple things. I still believed that there is a God who created the world, that sin entered the world that we can't fix for ourselves, that he sent his son who was man and God, like all of those very, you know, core Sunday school truths almost, you know, just this the simple parts of it. Like even when it felt like it was going to be easier to leave church because it was so hard to be with people and people are so people-y. <laughs> <laughs> like even in that, like I still felt this is true. And because this is true, how then should I act? And I felt very strongly that although the easier thing for me would have been, and I had, I have lots of friends. I'm thinking about some friends in my writing community in particular who grew up in the church, who basically since COVID have walked away, you know, have, have gone into what they would call deconstruction, right? And I feel like I have been on the same path, asking the same questions but I came to a different conclusion Yeah, that it was reconstruction 
rather than deconstruction, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's such a personal thing. I feel like mm-hmm. I've deconstructed so many things, although I also would say that I've ended up in a different place than many of where my friends ended mm-hmm. up as well. Yep. And yet I think there's something, I think each of these areas are so personal, but especially spiritually, it's such an internal place. And yeah. people have such a variety of different beliefs and nuances of beliefs, yes. whether whether they're Christians or of other faith traditions or of a variety of denominations within Christianity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And being able to go on a journey that has some fear involved, right? It's scary mm-hmm. to unwork and rework and yes. question and answer. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> right. But though I do think it's kind of a lifelong conversation you have with yourself, I also think that like that is the kind of conversation that happens internally that allows whatever your spirituality to be, to be really yours. Right. Yeah. And, you know, where many of my friends, their answer is that the church is broken because it obviously is there. I don't think we can deny that. I don't think anybody should be denying that church as a whole, as it exists in the U S is deeply flawed. Yeah. Um, and there are there are two options, well, a few options, but you can walk away from an organized church body. But for me, I felt, you know, and again, like you were saying, personal conviction and personal uh, journey here. But I felt very strongly that I needed to be part of fixing the church from the inside mm-hmm. rather than just walking away. And so I stayed and it became a question of choosing to love people in their imperfection. Again, that radical acceptance of accepting things, not being happy with it, but loving it now with that hope of continued restoration and growth. And in fact, with with efforts toward that. Exactly. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. Personally. I can't change other people. I think yeah. that's really the key here is I can't change other people. I can only right. control my own actions and how I act in a situation. Well, and we can, you know, when you choose to be in, in something that you see flaws in, it takes intentional advocacy as well, right? Yes. It's not, I think what I was catching on was that word hope. I think it's very easy to think what our work is, is to be present and to sit back and hope, but actually there's no sitting back. Right. Mm-hmm. And much of the work is a personal work of yes. our own internal um, growth, but it's additionally like that advocating for the things that you feel convicted about right. in that space. Well, and, and challenging wrong thinking where you mm-hmm. see it. I think it's so good too, when that is what you're feeling called toward to differentiate that right from what can standardly be understood as Christians correcting people outside the church. Right. So thinking about all of these areas that you've touched on and the times in which you've chosen pursuing wellness, pursuing flourishing, even in the midst of times that were hard, think back to that younger version of yourself, whatever age she is, what would you say to her? How would you encourage her towards this growth, knowing what you know about it for yourself? That is a really 
challenging question, partly because, you know, I look at all the different versions of Abby through the years, and I know that I had to be her to be me. Mm-hmm. So it isn't necessarily about wanting to go back and give her advice about how she should change or what she should do differently or anything like that. So much as if if I were to write my younger self a letter, I think I would tell her that I love her, that I have oceans of compassion for her, that she genuinely did the best that she could with the tools she had available to her at the time. And I would tell her to keep going, which she did. Mm-hmm. I'm proud of her. She didn't give up even when that soundtrack in her head told her that she should. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like perhaps part of that whisper might be, there are more tools that you'll find eventually. Yes. Keep going. <laughs> it gets better. Yeah. Genuinely, it does. That's so cliched, but... It really does. It really does. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Guys, I I don't know what decade you're in listening to this, but I, all I've ever heard is the next decade is better than the last one. <laughs> I has, have found that to be true that so far. That is 100% true. I'm looking with anticipation towards my 40s here mm-hmm. in a few years. <laughs> Honestly, the countdown is on. We're ready. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you for helping me hone my skills of interviewing. (laughs) My pleasure. And um, y'all stay tuned for whenever Abby's book gets picked up. I've already read it. So if any publishers are listening, let me know. (laughs) It's really good. I would really like to read it in my book club. So if someone could print it for us, that would be so great. (laughs) Appreciated all around. All around. (laughs) Yeah. You will get rich off of it. So (laughs) Um, thank you again for joining me and stay tuned listeners for a special treat at the end of this episode. Okay. Welcome to my podcast. (laughs) Why don't you introduce yourselves? Abram, five and a half. You're Abram and you're five and a half. What about you? I'm Clara and I'm seven. And? I'm Dinah and I'm nine. Oh, and we are all related. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're my nieces and nephew. Yeah. But I want to know what you have to say about things that make you feel happy and make you feel excited about life and doing good in the world? So, my first question is, do you like to, on purpose, do nice things for people? Yeah. Yeah. You do? Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You do, definitely? Let's see. Clara, would you tell me, is there something specific that is nice that you like to do for people? Share. Share what? Share things that other people might be greedy about and keep it all for for themselves. Yeah. Like it's easy for sometimes for people to be stingy with what they have. Mm-hmm. And like earlier, I shared a treat I had with my siblings that I made at co-op. Oh. Only, only, one, only one 
scoop for me, and, and she got more. Oh, you had different amounts? But how did you feel when she shared with you? Mm. Did you feel like, oh, that was nice of her? Or did you think, ew, gross, I hate it when people share with me? It was nice. It was nice. How did you feel, Dinah? I felt really happy. I was glad she was sharing with me. So, doing nice things for people. I like sharing. Okay, so what's something nice that you like to do, Dinah? I like helping my parents carrying the groceries when they get them from Aldi and Walmart because they can't carry them in the same at the same time and sometimes it's really cold in our garage so we want to get it done as fast as possible. Yeah. So like helping them especially. So it kind of helps the chore go quickly. Yeah. So that's like sharing also but it's sharing maybe a negative thing so it makes yeah. it easier. So you were talking about sharing good things to make other people happy and you were sharing about or talking about sharing hard things to make them easy. Mm-hmm. What's something nice you like to do? I like petting moose. Petting moose? Mm-hmm. So you like to make your pets happy by taking care of them and mm-hmm. making them feel loved? Mm-hmm. Little scratches? Yeah. And I also Cricket is starting to like me more. Your cat, Cricket? Mm-hmm. How did you get him to like you more? I ordered her the way she wanted us to hold her. Oh, instead of kind of holding her in a rough way? You were gentle with her? Yep. What is something nice you like to do for people and not animals? Hmm. Sharing with them. Like what? Like sharing them snacks. Mm-hmm. I also feel like you're a pretty good helper, too. I think you help Grandma and Grandpa sometimes. I do, and sometimes I don't. And I also like singing. Oh, Let's come back to that in a second. So we're going to change questions. And the new question, instead of what is something nice we do for other people, we're going to talk about something that makes our heart happy. So you like singing, huh? Mm-hmm. What's something else that makes your heart happy? Mm. My dad and mom give us ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Are all of your answers food related? Nope. Okay. Clara, what's something that makes your heart happy? Hmm. Taking care of people who needs help. Mm-hmm. Taking care of people that need help makes your heart happy. Mm-hmm. Especially like old people. Yeah. That need help or like little babies. I like holding, taking care of, feeding them. Yeah. Why do you think that makes your heart happy? Hmm. Like, does it make you feel useful, or it makes you feel like you're giving them kindness or it makes me feel like I'm giving them like kindness yeah sometimes kind of like we were talking about before doing nice things for people helps our hearts to feel happy huh mm-hmm. what about you Dinah what makes your heart feel happy reading makes my heart feel happy because it can help me express my feelings into the book yeah especially like in the Bible in some really good book I like. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite audiobook you've listened to? Um, probably something by Roald Dahl. I'm not sure which one. You like Roald Dahl? I like James and the Giant Peach, but then again, I also like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Ooh, yeah. Which also kind of goes together with Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. I've never even read that one. Really? 
it comes right after. It's more of the story? Yeah, it's like the follow after. Abe, what kind of books do you like to read? I like Narnia. Narnia is pretty good. Mm -hmm. The horse and his boy. The horse and his boy. And now what's the one we are doing? The magician's nephew. Ah! The magician's nephew. I was going to say that. Yeah? So you like all those ones? Yeah. Those are good ones. What about you, Clara? What books do you like? I like sometimes like sweet, sad books yeah. that make you sometimes like cry for grown-ups and yeah. stuff. Yeah, those are good. Okay, here's my last question for now. My last question for now is what type of things make you feel like you're living your very best life? And I'll give you an Wait. example. What do you mean, like, types? I'll give you an example. Some of the things that make me feel like I'm living my very best life is when I get to see my friends and my neighbors and we get to have dinner together outside when it's sunny out and the weather is gorgeous. Or when I get to read all the books I want to read. Or when I'm listening to music that makes my heart feel good. Those are all things that make me feel like my life is good. I wish... You just got found some someone to marry. I know. That would maybe make my life feel good too, but my life is pretty good otherwise too. Mm-hmm. What's something that makes your life feel good? Mm. Or do you want to go last? I do I want to go last. Okay. You want to go first? Sure. Um, spending time with family members who live further away from me like you or my grandma and grandpa Riley who live in Memphis, which is pretty far away from here. Mm -hmm. So it makes me really happy when we get to spend time with them. Like it makes you feel more connected to your family. And what other kinds of things do you like that makes you feel like my life is full? Spending time with my very best friends. Who are they? The McHenrys. Mm -hmm. Do you play lots of games? Yes. I play most games with two little uh, young boys named Phil and Walter. So playing, having fun, spending time with family, that all makes your life feel full. Clara, what about you? Well, spending time with my family, Having fun and a bunch of things. I know one thing that I think makes you feel pretty good, too. What? I think that you really like making up stories. Well, true. And that doesn't that make you feel creative? Yeah. Like, something that makes my life way easier is my imagination. Mm-hmm. How does it make it easier? Well, it just makes me have more fun when I'm bored or something like that. It keeps you entertained? Mm -hmm. That's a really good thing. Okay, Abe, what's something that makes your life feel full? Our friends coming over and the dad's racing <gasps> and having s'mores. Ooh, yeah. And I can think of a couple things you like, too. What? Driving Betty, shooting bows and arrows with Grandpa. Don't you all do that? Yes, that's right. <laughs>
I have one more thing that I just thought of. What's um, the one more thing you thought of? I really like expressing my feelings into art. Makes my life feel more easy. Mm-hmm. Like just yesterday, I made a bunch of pictures of snowflakes because it was snowing out. And I also painted a hummingbird and a like rainbow that's all blended together and then another that's a rainbow and it's all blended together. And it helps you express what you're feeling and seeing? Yeah. Does you think it helps people understand you? More or less. Yeah. What song makes you feel the most yourself? Like when you sing it, you think, this is my theme song. I I have a couple songs written down on this kids' pop book. Okay, this. tell me what they are. I can't read them. Okay, let me see. <laughs> Every Time We Touch. I get the feeling. Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Does that make you feel, what did I say? Most yourself. Does that make you feel most yourself? Hmm, a bunch of those songs, so yes. Okay. Jesus Loves Me? Yes. What's one of your favorite songs that makes you feel yourself, Dinah? Should we come this back to This isn't really a song, but to me it kind of is the song of nature. Mm. The sound of, like, birds tweeting. The sound of the wind blowing in the trees. And... That's beautiful. Like creeks flowing in the water. So like the music of nature, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I feel like that makes me feel most myself also. The sound of the woods is my theme song. What would you say to other kids or to grown-ups who want to know how to um, feel content and to feel um, love from other people? Because, you know, sometimes life is difficult and some people might need encouragement. What would you say? Even though sometimes things are hard, there's one person we can always trust, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. When you are feeling sad, what are some things other people can do for you or things that you can do that can help you feel happier? One thing that I can do for myself is just pray for the thing that's making me sad. Like something you're scared like about? something I'm scared about or like a bad dream I just had and I woke up sweating or something. Mm-hmm. Like I'll pray for me to not be scared anymore. Or if I just got hurt badly, like if I fell in the ho- on a sidewalk and mm-hmm. I scuffed my knee up, I'd pray for it to feel better and soon it would. So your faith in God helps you to... Feel better when you're not feeling well. And sometimes, if just like listening to an audio book or mm-hmm. reading a book or just laying down and just thinking about why it made me so sad and scared, mm-hmm. that can sometimes make it feel better. Sometimes, if it's at night, I'll lay down on the front porch and look up at the stars. That can help me get calmer again and feel better. Yeah, it makes your heart feel peaceful, doesn't it? What's something, Clara, that makes you feel better when you feel bad? Well, being with my family when I'm stressed, like my mom, she takes therapy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Sometimes it's nice to get to talk to somebody about what's bothering us, huh? Mm-hmm. Abe, last question for you. What's something nice that you do when you don't feel good? When you feel sad? When my sisters make, my sisters make me feel better. When they help encourage you? That's a nice answer. Okay, it's time for our pizza movie night. Thanks, Woohoo! thanks for joining me. Welcome anytime.